Nintendo Audio. A quick thanks before we start the show. Filmmaking Confidential, the book, is getting rave reviews from readers, filmmakers, film professors, and even people in creative fields other than filmmaking. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it and for your support. If you haven't yet picked it up and you want to learn more filmmaking secrets, Filmmaking Confidential is for you. It's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. Order it by visiting Audible or Amazon. To find out more, check out filmmakingconfidential.com and stevebalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. Each week, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Many episodes include questions or commentary from other filmmakers listening to the conversation. Today's guest is film director Nathan Adloff. His first film, Nate and Margaret, sold for worldwide distribution prior to completion. The film stars Natalie West, Tyler Ross, and Gabby Hoffman. Roger Ebert praised the film as a smart, observant movie about two very particular people, and its casting is pitch perfect. The New York Times called it fragile and simple in the best possible way. His second feature film, Miles, is semi-autobiographical and centers on a high school senior who joins the girls' volleyball team in hopes of winning a college scholarship. It stars Molly Shannon, Paul Reiser, and Missy Pyle. Miles won the Audience Choice Award in Outfest, Los Angeles. Well, I guess a little back story about me. I went to college in Southern Illinois and I studied film and graphic design. And then I moved straight to Chicago and started working for Apple. I worked at the Apple store for five and a half years. I'm a former genius. <laughs> Is that what um, I call them? <laughs> well, no, I mean, no, I just call myself that. Um, uh, and I had always kind of been making short films or helping friends with mo- their movies. And um, I think the point, like the, the turning point was when I quit Apple, when I quit my, you know, 40 hour a week stable job to make my first feature. And, um, and I was really grateful for that job because it allowed me to, to leave and kind of have a bit of padding to do that, that freedom. And I also met my writing partner at, at working there. So it gave me both of those things. And I felt like, you know, I just came, it came to a point where I was like, what am I, am I going to do this forever? Like, it's not what I, it's not my passion. Um, So I quit. And uh, a few months later, my writing partner quit too. And we sort of did a freelance thing to supplement um, our writing time and our planning, planning our first feature. And then about a year later, we were shooting it. So um that it was sounds... scary. I mean, it was a big moment to quit, you know, to quit a job like that. And then, um, you know, to pursue your passion. Well, walk creative. me through, if you can remember, I mean, I know it's been a minute, but if you can remember those feelings, like describe <clears throat> for me when, when you decided I'm going to go for this. It was very physical, actually. In the same month, I got um, vertigo and I got uh, shingles. <laughs> and it was literally stress coming out of me from that job. And, you know, I've 
got, I finally got like physical signs that it was time to go. So that was like the boiling point for sure. And I left a few months, you know, a few weeks later. Um, but it was a long time coming. That was just a culmination of, you know, all of that. Um, and wanting to make films and it just, it just, uh, came to a, a, a head. So, and yeah, I, I mean, it was a slow thing and then that happened. And I was like, okay, this is time. It's time. It's time to plan an exit. Did you plan it or did you just go? I planned it. Yeah. I, I talked about it a lot with my friends and coworkers and all of that. And everyone was super supportive. So it, it, and it felt like the right, it was the best thing I ever did, honestly. Um, Cause it really got my, it really allowed me to focus on my filmmaking career. Had you um, finished the script or put anything together or had any of that happened yet when you quit? We job? started writing it when we were still working at, at the Apple store. So um, I would say we were maybe a third of the way through. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're writing and rewriting until you're, locked in the editing room, you know, but uh, yeah, we were about a third of the way and it was feeling really good and it just felt like the right time to go for it. And which movie oh. was this? Uh, this was Nate and Margaret. Okay. And, and so you quit your job. You didn't have any kind, did you have a support group or any kind of like financial security at the time? I started working freelance for a former manager from the Apple store who started a consulting company. So I would go into mostly older folks' home and uh, like just be an Apple tutor one-on-one, which was very, very like stress-free, very different from what I, you know, just left and very flexible. So it allowed me to write and focus on uh, making films. Okay. So I did Um, that for like three and a half years while I was making movies. So the first, when you did Nate and Margaret, yeah. um, how did you go about, walk me through, you know, you have a script. How did you know how to cast it? How did you know how to find the financing? I didn't. I, at the same time, I was acting in my friend's movies, uh, Joe Swanberg. I don't know if you've heard of him, but I was in one of his early um, web series and I did a feature with him. And so we were going around to film festivals with that. And I was like, Oh, that sounds fun. I'll fly to, you know, Birmingham, Alabama and go to a film festival. Um, And it was through film festivals where, where I met uh, my producer and um, people who ended up uh, investing a little bit. I met at film festivals but it was it was definitely just getting out there and meeting people. So you just approached people or people came to you and said, you know, God, what are you doing? I'm really, let me know what you got coming on the horizon or how did, yeah. how did that happen? Well, it was one specific place and one specific person that was the producer on both of my features. And that, and that person was on the jury at the Sidewalk Film Festival in Birmingham, Alabama. So we just hit it off. He was a filmmaker, is a filmmaker. Uh, he wrote and directed three features and he, it was just good timing because he was at a point where he was wanting to branch out and produce other people's work. And 
I had a rough draft of the script. He read it on the plane ride home and we were shooting the next summer. So it just, it just happened that way. But I had met a lot of people before that. It wasn't like, oh, it was the first person I met at this one film festival. I had been talking to people about it and just trying to use the resources I had and the people and the connections I had to start talking to people about it. But it was that moment where that really got the ball rolling because he had made, he had, he came with all of that experience. He had a network of uh, investors. Um, it was the first time I'd heard of actors paying to be in movies, um, which, you know, they're also an investor, but they're getting a role out of it, which is good for them. Um, so that was, yeah, that, that was the turning point to getting my first feature made and then the second one as well. Well, how, okay, so, so you made the first movie. Yeah. And then it's finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have any, like, did it go smoothly or were, were there any sort of like challenges Make, along making, the way? Shooting it? Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was hard. It was like one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, I mean, we shot it in two weeks for, you know, little to nothing. Um, friends, you know, cameras, and a lot of the actors were friends. Um, you know, we were shooting in the house I lived in. We were shooting on the street outside. Um, so, yeah, it was really stressful. And 12-hour days for two weeks takes a lot out of you. Um, sure. So it was, really, it was really hard, but it was worth it. And, you know, we all, it was a family effort. It felt like everyone was there for the right reasons. And I think it's really important to find those people that want to do it to make the work and not a paycheck, at least at the beginning. Um, yeah. All right. So then that movie's finished. Uh, what was the reception? It was good. Uh, we, it got bought by Breaking Glass Pictures before it premiered at a festival and it played around for almost two years, um, won some awards, uh, was on Netflix. Um, it was nice. I mean, it was a nice small release for, for an indie movie. And, and then it, it was a calling card too, to get my second feature made, which was a, a step up as far as, you know, the budget actors, all of that. Once you made the initial shift into doing, you know, to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, or your hands where your feet are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Once you made that decision and you just went with it, did you ever have another time when you found yourself talking again without doing, or were you always, Mm. have you just been doing since? There were, yeah, I mean, sure. There were, there was a lot of talking where people would want to collaborate and it was just sort of endless conversations. Um, And those were usually projects that were not my own and I, that weren't my baby. So I wasn't like taking the reins to like put the team together. And most of those just kind of never happened. Um, do you think it's, it's just because a lot of people who sometimes have these ideas and 
at that moment are interested, but yeah. then maybe not so much, like maybe it's not really their passion. I think so. Yeah. I think a lot of people, not everyone, I think a lot of people like the idea of being a filmmaker or a, a famous actor or the, the idea of fame or just like being in the industry more than the follow through, like the work that it takes to get to, to be there for, you know, and earning it <laughs> and not just talking about it and pipe dreams and big, you know, it, it's, I've kind of got to become attuned to like the red flags of like when people are talking about projects or like pitching something to work on with me. You what know, are some I, of them? Well, the number one word is when they bring up Sundance. <laughs> oh. Like, oh, this will go to Sundance. And you know, I'm like, okay, like that would be great. That's very hard to do. <laughs> right. Um, so just things like that when, I mean, it's nice to be, to have the big goals and to want all of it, but you kind of have to get, there's a lot of steps in between. So when you're immediately talking about, you know, the flashy parts of it, I think that might be the wrong It reminds me way of, to look at um, it. Yeah. what's the, uh, waiting for Guffman? Yeah. So it's like, um, you know, it's, it's, you're making like a short film or not even a short film. It could be even a feature with nobody in it and no one that has experience. And you're like, Oh my God, we're going to win the Oscar. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, the, totally. Totally. Or somebody does a crying scene yeah. and you say cut and you think it's like Meryl Streep has just performed, but it's just because this yeah. person just cried, you know, it's like, it's yeah. Everyone has their different path, their own path. Um, some people make their first movie and it does, it is a Sundance hit. And then the rest is, they're, they're off to the races, you know, with their career. But, um, well, on that same me, regard, yeah, I have had at least four, if not five friends whose films debuted at Sundance and they could not find a buyer. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I've heard of that happening. Not all of I them, would, but a few of them. Have they, um, I, would, I, I would think that making their next movie would be easier though, because they've had, they can say, well, you know, my last one played Sundance and people hear that and. Sure, but it's a little misleading because if you ask yeah. them how much money it made, they'd say, oh, well, we still haven't licensed it yet anywhere. <laughs> right. I mean, right, right, right. maybe they have now, you yeah. know, it's like, uh, I don't know their situations, but I, I do know that it was tricky for a, a long time yeah. after they were in it. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so getting back to your trajectory. So when mm -hmm. did you, on your timeline, was Cock and Bull before Miles? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so tell me, just kind of refresh my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Cock and Bull was short, uh, a short film that I did with my friend Danny Rhodes. Um in 2009, eight, nine, 10? No, it was after my first feature, it was 2012. Um, so it was right after my first feature was sort of making the rounds at the festivals. I think, I think it had been bought at that point. And I was just like craving making something new. And I knew a feature was for, you know, down, down, the line of ways where, you know, I didn't have a, a script to, to shoot a feature. 
So, uh, and back to the Sidewalk Film Festival, where my feature played and I'd been there with the other movie that I acted in and all that and met my producer, I had made friends with them and I wanted to go back. And the programmer at the time said, we'll just make anything and we'll play it and you can come. I was like, great. <laughs> so I wanted to just make something quick and easy. And uh, my friend Brian Levin, who shot my feature, who I'd met on Craigslist when I knew nobody in Chicago, or you know, I was posting, looking for people, cinematographers, editors, to make movies. And he shot and edited my first feature, which he's amazing, and he's a jack of all trades and does a little bit of everything. But he had a camera, he had a microphone. I had myself and my friend, and I thought we were kind of funny. So we came up with an idea of prank calling people. Our, uh, the backstory was we're best friends, his boyfriend just broke up with him. He calls me to come over and have a wine and sushi night. And then we prank call his ex. Turns out he's married to a woman. Then we're like, oh, we want to do more. We want to prank call more people. So it's just a, like a montage of improv fake prank calls. And it was eight minutes. We did it for $400. Our microphone was duct taped to a boom pole, uh, uh, a painter's pole, you know, and we used our friend's um, apartment that overlooked the skyline of Chicago. So we wanted like to find a free place that had the highest production value. And so I sent it to Sidewalk and they were great. It's funny. Great. And you're coming. And so I almost didn't submit it anywhere else because I, I was thinking we did this in four hours for no money. Um, my friend and I, you know, our sense of humor is very dark and specific. And I thought, well, you know, we'll laugh at it and it's a trip to get to this film festival that we love. Um, and I sent it to, but I sent it to Outfest and I, I forgot that I, I did it and I forgot about it because I thought it wouldn't get in. And then a few months later, I got an email saying it was accepted. I knew nobody out here in LA and nobody at Outfest and I was freaking out and I came out for it. And I moved here six months later because I loved, I loved the, the festival, the film community that I met here. And um, yeah, so I guess you never know, <laughs> even if you're making something in an afternoon. Uh, it, and that led to so many other things. We made a second one, which played more film festivals. We had a bit more of a budget. It led to us pitching an original TV show with anonymous content to um, Showtime and uh, like six different networks. Um, so yeah, you never know. So it really, if we just talked about it, none of like, I wouldn't, I'd probably be still be in Chicago, you know? Film director, Nathan Adloff. Another great filmmaking confidential guest is Elizabeth Spear. If you want to keep people happy, keep them fed, respect their time. You don't need 14, 16 hour days on set. You don't, you just need to be more efficient. Do not stress people out by underfeeding and overworking them. You can hear my full interview with Elizabeth at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. Coming up, more from director Nathan Adloff on casting, cruise ships, and befriending a burglar. Stay with us. Now, back to our conversation with director Nathan Adloff. 
both features are sort of loosely based on me. They're semi-autobiographical. And so we were brainstorming, you know, put it like, what would that be? That's on a movie. Um, it evolved. It was something very different in the beginning than what, what ended up being the final movie. How did you attract the talent that you got? I had the same producer on the second one and he had worked, he had just worked on his first like big, you know, million dollar budget movie. And he loved the casting director and he thought he would respond to my script. So he sent it to him and he let, we met for lunch and he wanted to cast it. So the first, and we were also, at the same time looking for investors starting that process too and we got a little bit and the first money we spent was on the casting director because it's kind of the chicken or the egg like if you have names attached you can get more money but you need money to get names attached um so we used that money to get names attached and um molly shannon was the first one to say yes and um everyone loves her so Paul Reiser said yes, Missy Pyle, Yardley Smith. Like, it was a snowball effect. So once you kind of have, at least for in my experience, once I had a, a name, it was everything else. It was still hard as hell, but everything else was a little bit easier at that point to put the pieces together. Were you yourself actively pitching this project to investors or was your producer? It was kind of split. We actually had six producers, so it was it was sort of it was very much piecemealed together through their networks. I met our biggest investor on a cruise ship uh, and there were, it was a film festival on a cruise ship. Um, what one? What's this? It's called Pride of the Ocean and it's a shorts film festival that's on a week cruise and it's sort of a, a workshop um, where you take a project, you take work that you've done and then you come with something you're working on and you get feedback. There's like breakout sessions, but you watch each other's movies um, and you're on a cruise ship and then you do the excursions and all that. Uh, but there was a, a guy on the, the cruise that loves movies and loves the festival. And I had heard that he was investing in movies and I showed him my first feature on the ship. I brought a DVD. And I showed it to him and he said he wanted to help. And he supplied like a, a third of the budget. Um, and then the rest of it came through my producers and private investors. So I wasn't like in a room pitching traditionally to people. It was, it was word of mouth. Cool. Yeah. So then you make that movie. Mm -hmm. And how was the production of that in, in comparison to all of what you've done so far? The stress was the same. <laughs> uh, we had 18 days instead of 14. And we, it was hard. It was really hard. We were shooting in New York. And it was the movie takes place in rural Illinois. And we did that because of the tax credit in New York. They give you 30% of your entire budget back as free money once you start paying bills and post-production. It was really hard. It was hard to make our days. We had a tight... The schedule was so tight. I was lucky to get, you know, three takes and scenes. Um, we were still raising money when we were shooting. That was very stressful. Um, but you had, did you have enough to shoot to get it in the can? Or mm -mm. 
Really? Mm-hmm. It was towards the end. It was very last minute, like when the final funds were coming in. But we had pushed. We had pushed the movie a couple times. We were looking at shooting it in Illinois, my hometown, where it takes place. Um, we were looking at shooting it here, and then we had some issues with like actors' availability, so that pushed it again. So we were we we ended up shooting it six months later than we thought, which you would think that would be time to pull in more money, and we were. It just we needed more. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, it came to a point where we were like, well, are we going to make this or are we just going to keep pushing it? And so we decided to start it, which pushed us to work harder to get the rest of the money that we needed. I don't think I would do that again that way. It was very, like, I think I probably lost a year off my life from making that movie. It was worth it, but it was very, very stressful. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know if I've ever heard of that exact situation. I myself have gone forward with production knowing that I had enough to at least film everything. You know, and you, I you still about, needed to raise some for post. Right. But right. I, I the idea of starting something and not knowing whether you can finish shooting it or not is terrifying. I mean It is. It is. Yeah. It is. I I think I thought, well, I have a team of six producers. We'll, we'll figure it out. And, and we did. But, yeah. It was, well, and you it know, was... it de- depending upon the team and the crew, it's like if you really got down to the last 24 to 48 hours and everybody was really seeing the worth yeah. of the material, they yeah. probably would have just stayed anyway. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point you bring up because we actually um cut together a rough scene or two went during production like from day one and two and we're able to share that with people to show them the quality of it the people in it you know the vibe all that so so a couple of investors saw that and ended up coming on board because they they liked what they saw cool so that yeah still scary so scary. Yeah. So then, <laughs> and that film did very well. Yeah. It, it premiered at the Seattle Film Festival. It did a, you know, a year and a half, two years on the festival circuit and then um, got distribution and was on Netflix as well and is pretty much everywhere streaming online now. And it's, you know, another thing to show for the next project. And, you know, it's always... Cool. What's next? It's, it's another, I, so it's almost done being written. It's another feature based on my life. It's sort of a loose trilogy, the three movies. And it's about a character based on me in college who makes a bunch of bad decisions, including inviting a homeless man back to his trailer at school. I lived in a trailer at Southern Illinois. It's very classy. And he told me he robbed me two weeks before that, which happened. <laughs> So really? that was this, yeah. <laughs> in, so in real life? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know that until I invited him into my home. Um, and then he was like, oh, I was here and robbed this place two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh and I God. was asleep. My roommate was um, a drunk and left the door open, and the guy just walked in and started taking things. So I didn't even know it happened until the next day. And then, and then I met him and made friends with him. <laughs> 
so that was the spark of it. It's sort of a trio of odd uh, best friends. Um, well, that's going to be a fantastic movie. <laughs> I think I mean, so. Just the premise, no one can say that. Oh, yeah, my place was robbed. And then two weeks later, I meet this guy and invite him back to my house who happens to be the robber. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Of course it would happen to you. <laughs> I know, I know. It was one of those, like, one crazy night, like, this this awful night will never end. Yeah, I'd, there are elements of that that are in the other two, but this is, like, where we really focused on that story. You know, I just have my simple cameras and my 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 um, my phones and stuff with a 4K on it. But I don't understand how like how you, Nathan, and even Steve, when I'm looking at your picture right now, how you are just able to make everything look so professional. What is it about the lighting? Because most of the other stuff, you know, when when students do short films. There is this, I guess, hard light there, or it just looks, you know, that picture, it doesn't quite look as smooth as... Is there a trick in terms of figuring out the lighting so it has mm -hmm. that professional look instead of that, oh, I, I know that that kid did, just did it on their phone or something. It's just... Yeah. Well, I mean, if possible, I would try and have someone on board that knows lighting. Uh -huh. Even if they're a student that have, has learned lighting techniques. I am a very, very, very big fan of those big, they're very cheap, the, the China lanterns, the big round, like soft light lanterns that like stretch out and you put the metal rod in the middle and then a bulb. Uh -huh. You can move those around the room and they fill the room very nicely and softly and evenly. Uh -huh. Um and you can hang them from the ceiling and put them in front of you, behind, wherever. And they can be in the scene too, because it looks mm -hmm. like it would be there. Um, also Christmas lights are very nice and cheap. Um, but I think like having those two things on hand and, and, and a cinematographer or a lighting person at you know, whatever level could be very helpful to figure it out. But you could do a lot with just your phone because phones, I mean, we know they're shooting feature films on phones now. And um, the more light, the better with a phone. Um, okay. It can look very grainy in low light, which is probably the effect you're talking about. Um, okay. So it's just kind of playing with it until you've got the budget and bring in somebody that knows what they're doing. Then that's what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, uh, Honestly, I would get a couple of those lanterns, those China lanterns and light bulbs. Just um, if you get like the LED lights on a dimmer where you can uh -huh. slide it up and down and make it brighter or softer and find okay. that sweet spot right. and just look at, you know, do a test with your phone, do some test footage okay. and you can look at it right away and see if, if there's too harsh of a shadow or if you can't see their face um, mm -hmm. or if it's too grainy, turn it up a little. So, I mean, and then the safest thing is like um, how Javier looks right now where it's daylight <laughs> and he's like in yeah. the sun, but it's soft. Yeah. Finding an environment like that, you know, is, is nice too. Um, what would you say, Steve? Well, I was gonna, I'm glad you said dimmer because I love the big paper uh, China balls lights. Yeah. And in fact, my film uh, Occupying Ed was that was all we used. Mm -hmm. And it was a professional DP. And that was his choice. Like he didn't have 
you know, a bunch of fills and a bunch of other stuff. It was basically just natural light and uh, the paper lant lanterns. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is um, if, if you play around with natural light as much as you can without, you know, I, I would move somebody into the spot that where the natural light is perfect as opposed to trying to force the natural light around you know, I, I would I would do it in reverse. You know, use what's available to you. Like if if we're gonna film right now, uh -huh. uh, is it is it better that I'm standing here or over there? You know, because of where the lighting is working, and then depending upon where I would go, would sort of uh, inform where how the framing should be or what the shot should be. And that is if only I was working with um, natural light which I think is beautiful. And if you can get away with just using natural light, and by that I mean natural light from the sun and the windows, but then you might have a reflector board or a big white piece of cardboard that could act as a reflector mm -hmm. from the natural light, then you don't ever have to actually plug anything in other than the camera. Of course, you may need some, like I have this little desk lamp, which if you just couldn't quite get enough, maybe that might do just a little bit more. Uh-huh. You know, it may not be so darkness. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't like the way I feel around that kind of light. Um, <laughs> right. Just my, my brain. But um, right. yeah, but I think, I don't think you have to spend a lot of money and I don't think you have to spend the time or the money trying to find somebody who quote unquote is a pro because, you know, a lot of uh, people think that, oh, just because they have a new red camera that the image is going to look beautiful. But the truth is it's the person using it. Mm -hmm. And if they know how to use it, then it doesn't matter what the camera is. They could be using the phone and it would look just as good as if they shot it on a red camera. And... Mm -hmm. I've seen images shot on the red camera that look terrible because the person using it just thought, oh, I can press the button and it'll do it for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that you can really just do anything for no money and your phone and whatever materials you have mm -hmm. at your, in your resource toolkit. Okay. I keep a big cardboard box of extension cords, light bulbs, the China lanterns, like lay flat I have different colored ones so it's kind of like having a gel on a light you know you can get a specific um, color uh, in the light um, garbage bags to black out windows if you need to shoot a night scene during the day um, what else is in there just like random stuff that I just keep and carry over to the next thing and I usually have we usually then then you don't have to spend money every time unless you need something specific but you kind of have like a toolkit that you can kind of build and have ready for the next thing okay thank you yeah film director Nathan Atloff tune in next time for more filmmaking confidential it is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. 
For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. If you have a question about filmmaking you'd like answered on the podcast, send me an email using the contact form on the website. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook, wherever books are sold. This is Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, and keep going. Mm-hmm.